Well, hey, everybody. It is so good to be back here with you again. My name is Adam, and we're just going to get right into it. We're in one of the most important passages in all of Scripture today. So please grab a Bible and crack it open to John 19. And while you're doing that, I want to ask you guys something. Have you guys think back to a specific moment or ever had a moment that's helped cement something into your mind, helped you understand something in a really crazy way. Maybe it's something that somebody said to you. Maybe it's something you've read in a book. But a moment that's really held as a tangible reminder of an understanding. I remember having one of those experiences at the Holocaust Memorial Museum. I went there a couple years ago with my family. And it's a pretty famous museum. I mean, it's supposed to be a very somber reality check of the suffering that happened during the Holocaust. And that is exactly what it was. I remember, though, one room in particular made the difference. It was a big room. You walk in, and this was what the museum was really famous for. You'd walk in, and lining the walls were piles and piles of old shoes. And upon closer examination, we realized that this was all that remained from the women, the men, and the Jewish children that suffered and died during the Holocaust. And I had seen and heard about the suffering of these people, but having that tangible reality right in front of me made all the difference. I had never processed suffering as something that affected millions of people, yet still felt incredibly personal. And that is exactly what we are talking about today as we discuss Jesus' death on the cross. The form of execution that Jesus suffered was called the Roman crucifixion. It was meant for the lowliest of society. It was purposefully designed to be the most shocking and humiliating way to die for the worst criminals known to man. And yet the Jews and Pharisees had chosen Jesus, the savior of the world, to receive this punishment. And on the service level, this story just doesn't make sense. Here we have God, the hero of the story we call the Bible, and he's dying at the hands of the people who hate him. And so the question we're going to be answering today is this, why did Jesus have to die? Because while the crucifixion of Jesus could be seen as the worst thing that's ever happened in human history, it's also the greatest thing that's ever happened to man. Because what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And we're going to be unpacking that idea and spending some time figuring out what that really means. Here's our big idea today. Jesus died so that we may have life. And before we get into our text, I'd like to pray for us before we start. God, thank you so much for bringing us here. Lord, please prepare our hearts and our minds for this passage, God. It is a heavy, heavy passage that we're looking at today. Lord, please just be with us. Give us us the strength to get through this, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so once again, we're in John 19, but let's make sure we can really understand the context of the situation before we move on here. In the past couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at the final moments of Jesus' life leading up to this final moment on the cross. Jesus has been teaching with his disciples. He's performed miracles. He's traveled all around. And like we heard last week, these final days of his life have been spent unjustly tried, accused, painfully humiliated and mocked by religious officials. And today, we're at the finale of Jesus' ministry as he sacrifices his body on the cross. Let's start reading here, 
in verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. You know, I think it's really hard for us to understand the true weight of this situation because we don't really have a lot to compare it to. Sacrifice in our day and age doesn't look the same as it did in Jesus' time. So let's take a second and understand the extent of what's really going on here. Point number one is this. Jesus' sacrifice models God's love for us. We have a lot of ways to think about that word sacrifice today. You know, you can think of sacrificing your money or your time for other people or yourself. We just spent a long time sacrificing our own comfort and desires by staying inside to keep people safe during COVID. But very rarely are we ever sacrificing something that's physically and tangibly part of us. It's often something detached that isn't tangible. But in Jesus' time, when you would use the word sacrifice, your mind would go to something very different. There's a huge cultural difference there. You'd likely be thinking of the process of taking an animal on an altar and sacrificing it for the sake of your sins. The books of Exodus and Leviticus describe these processes in great detail. When you sinned, one of the most common forms of sacrifice was to take your best animal, I mean the cream of the crop pick, And you would sacrifice it on an altar as a reminder of the consequences of your sins in addition to a reminder of God's faithfulness to you. That animal was to be a substitute in your place, taking the punishment that you deserve for your sin, and you were made right with God through that sacrifice. So when people saw Jesus on that cross, those ideas of sacrifice were on the forefront of their minds. When Jesus willingly accepts death on the cross, Despite living a perfect, blemishless life, he is literally taking the role of a sacrificial lamb to the greatest extent. And on that same note, another thing about sacrifice, you're not going to sacrifice or give something up for someone that you don't care about. Think about your own parents. By deciding to have a kid, they're essentially choosing to give up 20 years of their time, money, and some of their freedoms to raise a child because it's a worthy sacrifice for them. They loved you enough to do that. And in the same way, Jesus' sacrifice is the greatest display of love ever performed because the measure of his sacrifice is unmatched. He was a human being just like you and me that was willing to endure intense and incredible mental and physical pain for you and me. And I want to spend some time talking about what Jesus actually went through on the cross. So the cross was a Persian invention, but the Romans took it and perfected it. They took it a step further. These were people that cared a lot about their forms of punishment. In fact, it was something that they were really known for. And you would think that by crafting this horrible, horrible way to punish people, you would think that the cross would be their pride and joy, but it wasn't. It was just the opposite. In fact, they had created something that was so horrifying and humanly degrading that no one even wanted to talk about it. It was completely taboo. They'd created this monster of a thing, and then it became like he who must not be named from Harry Potter. I mean, you just did not talk about this thing. 
It was meant for the complete lowliest of society. And in this case, the act of crucifying Jesus was a multi-step process. First, he was scourged. Jesus was whipped with a leather strap that usually had a piece of metal or bone on the end of it. He was then humiliated. He was given a crown of thorns and a purple robe meant to signify royalty in order to mock his and, and was paraded around the city for all people to see. After being weakened by that first scourging, Jesus was forced to carry his own cross, a heavy, dirty piece of wood to the crucifixion location. Huge nails were used to attach the body to the wooden cross, not by the palm, but typically through the wrist. And death by crucifixion usually came from suffocation or exhaustion as the body remained on the cross for a short period for people to witness while it was buried. And the thing is, as bad as that death was, that wasn't even the biggest sacrifice for Jesus. Here it is. The fact that God, God himself, sacrificed his own status to become a man and then voluntarily die the worst death ever is crazy. For us, it'd be something like this. Imagine loving somebody so much that you would be willing to become a slug and then have salt poured over you while everybody watches. That's pretty much the equivalent of what Jesus did. And we've been talking a lot about the extent of what Jesus went through. But what takes it to another level is the realization that we're the ones who Jesus died for. He died specifically for you and for me when we did nothing to deserve it. His suffering and his death was incredibly powerful because it affects your life today and is incredibly personal. But not just yours, the lives of everybody in the world. Maybe you've heard it said that Jesus died for your sins, that were cleansed through uh, his death. But have you ever taken a moment to think about what that really means and how that works? Like, why do we say those things in reference to Jesus' death? Answering those questions helps us really understand how incredible this passage is. Point number two is this. Our Savior defeated sin. And first, I want to explain what it means to be a sinner. Have you guys ever studied really hard for a test, you've tried your best to prepare, and then the test day comes and you just totally blow it, all the knowledge just leaves your mind and you get a bad grade? If you haven't had that experience, just wait for college, don't worry. It'll happen. Uh, But essentially, all of us are doing that right now. If we were all graded on keeping God's commandments and following him perfectly, we'd all have an F. That's just the way it is. That's, and that's what sin is. It literally means missing the mark. No matter how hard you try, it's programmed into our human nature to fall short of God's standard of perfection. All of us have been separated from God through it and we're counted as spiritually dead in our transgressions because of it. To keep it brief and honest, that's not good news. That's a really bad. It means we're deserving of punishment. Back to that bad grade real quick. Having a bad grade is the worst, especially in this case when it's a matter of life and death. But whenever you have a bad grade in a class, there's one thing that could happen. There's always a chance that you can ask your teacher to like round up your grade. If you've got like a 92.5 or a 92.6 and you really need an A, sometimes you can email, ask your teacher, hey, I really need this A. Can you just round that up to a 93? And they'll, maybe they'll do it for you. You're good to go with your A. And that's awesome. That's, that's a cool teacher right there. 
what God essentially does is this. God takes that failing grade that you deserve, that F that separates you from him, and he rounds it all the way up to an A, which means eternal life with God instead of away from him. I know that's kind of a funny way to think about it, but here's how he does it. Just like us, thousands of years ago, God's chosen people failed to follow God in the same ways that we do now. They created idols, they treated each other poorly, I mean, they complained a lot, all while God was providing for them and literally leading them out of slavery in Egypt. And when you've got this group of people, all these broken, broken people who keep turning away from God, you would think that God would just let them have their own desires and just give up on these people, but that's not what happens. God showed grace to his people by not giving them what they deserved, but instead provided a way for his people in the Old Testament to demonstrate their faith through sacrifice. And this was that same sacrifice that we talked about a little bit earlier. You would take your finest crops, or more commonly, your, your, like the first animal, one of your best animals, and you would give it up on an altar as a reminder of your sins. God had allowed a way for something else to die in your place, even though you were deserving of that punishment. They were saved in the same way that we are now, by faith and through grace. To circle all the way back, Jesus dying on the cross is the fulfillment of God's original plan to save his people. And Hebrews 10 is a passage that sheds some light on this. Let's take a verse at, let's take a look at verse 1 real quick. Hebrews 10.1, the law, which is God's standard, this is referring to that old covenant and the sacrificial system, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So those sacrifices that people were making, even though it reminded them of their sin and served as a demonstration of faith, that never completely stopped them from sinning. More importantly, though, that system was meant to usher in what came through Jesus' life and death. Think of it like this. When people were sacrificing out of faith in the Old Testament, it was as if they were looking at a painting of what God's real plan for salvation was. And when Jesus came into the world and fulfilled that plan, he was that real thing that had been painted. He had been the reality the entire time. He was what was promised and what was prophesied about as the savior for God's people in every way. Now let's take a look back at John 19 to see this connection happen by looking at Jesus' final words in verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those final words are the most important words anyone has ever spoken. I mean, Jesus literally got a drink to clear his throat so that he could say him. In the Greek, it's a one-word phrase called tetaleste. It's the cry of a winner. And in this case, the victory was over the hold of sin. Promises and prophecies had been fulfilled, and Jesus' purpose on earth was complete. Through faith, you and I have been made right in the eyes of God because Jesus fulfilled those promises to his, 
that, that God promised to his people thousands of years ago. And that's why Jesus had to die. It is finished and we have life because of Jesus' death. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what that life really means and looks like. Point number three is this. We have new life through Jesus. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 31 of our passage in John to understand our final point here. Verse 31, now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. So at this point, John the author is letting you know that Jesus is 100% dead. When water poured out of Jesus' side where he was pierced, it was likely in the lungs. And water buildup in the lungs means that your organs are no longer receiving oxygen, which means he's dead. He's 100% dead. He's not just mostly dead or almost dead. He's totally gone. But the thing I want you to look at is this final line. He testifies so that you also may believe. Guys, there's a reason why that phrase has been repeated so many times. There's a reason why we've named our series after that. And it's because belief and trust in Christ leads to new life. And when I say new life, that could mean a lot of things. I'm sure that there's a couple things that already come to your mind already. Obviously, we're all alive right now. We've all got a pulse. We all need to eat. We need to drink and keep our bodies going. In the Greek, that's referred to as bios, life. It's the same life that plants or animals have. It's where we get our term biology from. And that's not the life that we're talking about here. You might also might go to just having an improved or more enjoyable life by the world's standards with more friends or opportunities or comfort. And that is not what we're talking about either. In fact, it's the opposite of what we're talking about. Jesus promises trials and Jesus isn't an infomercial trying to sell you a product. This new life that is promised from trust in Jesus is something very unique. That bios life that I talked about earlier will eventually run out, right? Our bodies will decay. We're going to die eventually. But new life in Christ will not. It's eternal. And it deals with your soul. Your bios life is the one that you're living for yourself, while this new life, which in the Greek is described with the word zoe, is a life that you're living for God. If you want to know what it's like to start living this new life, imagine a statue turning into a real person. That's how monumental the shift is. Having real life means that the pursuit of happiness that you've had from the world has been replaced with a love for joy from, from God. Excuse me. Having real life means that you're able to identify the ways that you sin and you want to take action against it. Having real life that means means that your time in heaven is more important than your time on earth. Guys, we're no longer living to please ourselves. We are living to please God with our new life. And all of it comes from trusting God with our belief. Belief that Jesus died so that one day you may find life. I've got two questions 
for you guys today. And there are really big questions that I'm still thinking about that you'll probably think about for the rest of your time walking with Jesus. The first one is this. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Is that a real reality? The second question is this. Why is it worth it to follow Jesus? And while you're thinking about those questions, while they're on your mind right now, I'd like to wrap us up in a word of prayer. God, thank you for the time that we've had to reflect on your sacrifice, Lord. God, I pray that we would really understand the extent of just how much you love us, Lord. This is a love that doesn't look like anything we can even comprehend from this world. Lord, it is one that only you can bring. God, thank you so much for showing us so much grace in our lives, Lord. I pray that we would trust you with our belief from this day forward, and that we would desire and want to walk with you every day of our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. That's all for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.